But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me. Thank you. That's great. Um, I am an Anglican priest. You might know that already. So then, you might know that I have been ordained. Um, you might not know that I have been ordained twice. Once, firstly, to the uh, office of uh, deacon on the 5th of February, 2005. And then secondly, I was ordained again, ordained to the priesthood some 10 months later on the 26th of November, 2005. On both occasions, clergy gathered around me and laid hands on me, laid hands on my head, symbolically representing the removal of my backbone or the bestowal of authority. I forget which, actually. Um, I, think it was, I think it was the latter, yes, the bestowal of authority. Uh, ordination is the giving of authority symbolically through the laying on of hands. And some priests go through a third ordination to emerge as bishops, and that's called consecration. A consecration service begins with these words. The Anglican Church of Australia, being an apostolic church, receives and retains the Catholic faith, which is grounded in Holy Scripture and expressed in the creeds, and within its own history in the 39 articles, in the Book of Common Prayer, and in the ordering of bishops, priests, and deacons. And in the introduction to the Book of Common Prayer, it says, It is evident to all men, unto all men, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures and ancient authors, that from the Apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church bishops, priests, and deacons. Today, we'll see if this statement is correct. We are working through a series of sermons entitled The Birth of Catholic Christianity, and this is Sermon 5 of 6. So what we're doing is we're looking at a tremendously formative stage in church history, a stage in history that gave us in broad outline the church that we have today a stage in history that takes us from the close of the New Testament on the one hand to the conversion of the Emperor Constantine uh, on the other hand in the year 312 AD, a period of time when the church became Catholic in two important senses of the word Catholic. Firstly, Catholic, that is a united, international, universal, all-inclusive movement in contrast to isolated independent congregations that might have had very little to do with each other. Catholic in that sense, and Catholic also as in the sense of orthodox, as opposed to heretical. One united set of beliefs expressed, as we've read, in the creeds. Um, well, in, in the early years of the second century AD, the, the, the 100s, a man, a man named Ignatius, who was the bishop of the church at Antioch, he wrote a series of letters 
in which he assumed, and regularly assumed, that each church would have one bishop or pastor, as well as a company of elders or presbyters or priests, plus a company of recognized deacons. And even before the end of that century, even before the end of the 100s, the almost universal pattern across the world for that time was that each city or town had one bishop with each congregation or church within each town having one or more priests or presbyters and one or more deacons. But by the end of the second century, the bishops were the unchallenged leaders in church affairs. And that is a pattern that we continue to have today. Bishops, priests, and deacons. A three-tiered, hierarchical pattern of ordained clergy. And the fact of ordination, ipso facto, produces a laity, Christians who are not ordained. The clergy do the ministry, the laity receive the ministry. Uh, This might all sound depressingly familiar. And indeed, this is the form that ministry takes in the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Oriental Orthodox Church, the Anglican Church, the Assyrian, Old Catholic, Independent Catholic, and some Lutheran churches, altogether well in excess of 60% of the world's 2.3 billion Christians. Is this situation, as the Book of Common Prayer so confidently asserts, what the Bible teaches? Well, uh, in the Gospels, let's start with the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus has disciples. And he teaches his disciples... And of his disciples, he selected 12, whom he called apostles, in order that they might be witnesses as they go, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that they'd been commanded by Jesus. As the book of Acts opens the apostles meet to select a substitute for Judas Iscariot, who departed the ministry in betraying Jesus. And through the early uh, days after the day of Pentecost, we see the 12 apostles leading in evangelism, teaching, prayer, and prayer ministry. Early chapters of Acts. As Acts 6 opens, there is a difficulty, an inadequate system for distributing aid to the needy. Uh, The 12 say, uh, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. And thereafter, they choose seven men, all known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, to take care of this administrative issue in order, as the apostles said, that the apostles themselves could continue to give attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. These seven men are clearly special, and at least two of them will have significant ministries that we're going to hear about later in the story. Nevertheless, they're given no official name or title. Sometimes the word deacon is attached to them, but that's never used in the text. They have no official title. 
Well, as the gospel spreads out from Jerusalem, and as churches are planted around the Mediterranean world, Luke, our author of of the book of Acts, he, he typically talks about church congregations meeting in homes, house churches, home fellowships, presumably the home almost certainly of the richest Christian in the district, in order that there might be enough space this, um, with this same man or woman uh, being seen in some sense as being in charge. When Paul is converted, the apostles are clearly still in authority in the church in Jerusalem. But by Acts chapter 11, we're also hearing about prophets such as Agabus, who are teaching with authority. And the church in Antioch, Acts chapter 13, is described as being led by prophets and teachers. In Acts chapter 15, in response to a doctrinal crisis about circumcision, Paul and Barnabas themselves now recognized as apostles, although in fact they did not know Jesus before his resurrection, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem for a special council meeting. And we discover that with respect to those now in authority in Jerusalem, they are described as apostles and elders. And as the story of Acts draws to its conclusion, and Paul begins to make his way yet again back to Jerusalem after one of his trips, he meets along the way with the elders of the church of Ephesus. And then Agapus, while staying in the home of Philip, the evangelist before arriving in Jerusalem, wherein he met with James, um, not, not James the brother of John, not James the apostle, but rather James the brother of Jesus. The head of the church in Jerusalem is no longer an apostle, but rather an elder. So then, within Acts, in addition to the general category of disciples, they're all disciples, but of the disciples, we've got also we've got apostles, Prophets and teachers, evangelists and elders, all terms of recognized form of leadership. And the rest of the New Testament provides us with lots of diversity with respect to recognized leadership, but with little uniformity. Neither the church in Thessalonica nor the church in Corinth seem to have any recognized body of elders. However, in Thessalonica, it is clear that some do have some form of recognized superior authority, an authority that ought to be submitted to and respected. Paul writes, Now now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. They are to be held in the highest respect. Again, in Corinth, Paul advises submission to some without ever directly giving them a title or an office. Some who were early converts converts, and who have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people, such as those who belong, for example, to the household of Stephanus, 1 Corinthians 16.15. But beyond that, Paul's express teaching is that every Christian is a minister. Paul's express teaching is that every Christian is a minister. Every Christian has a ministry, a gift from the Holy Spirit, 
for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one of the sorry, all these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. First Corinthians fourteen. What shall we say then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three, should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Well, um, that might sound to us like some for fairly um, amazing form of spontaneous church worship. Um, Paul, as you can hear, is, it loves spontaneity as long as it's well planned. Because, of course, many of these ministries would have required serious preparation. It might also sound to us like it's a free-for-all without authority. There is, of course, authority, but it's a shared authority. All contributions are weighed carefully by others. Everyone is accountable. And uh, we don't know who the others are, but it, it is logical and it, it stands to reason that the opinions of some were more of more weight or value than the opinions of others. Presumably because they've been Christians longer. Um, and, and the evidence of their lives show that they're mature Christians. Well, Paul's, uh, their, their Paul's earlier letters, Paul's later letters, seem to address a more defined situation. Paul tells the church in Ephesus, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And Paul's letter to the Philippians is addressed to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. And this is the first time those words appear as titles, as officers, labels for some. Two groups within the church in Philippi who have distinct ministries, roles with titles. Back in the book of Acts, Paul said to those elders of the church in Ephesus, Keep watch over yourselves 
and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So, at at least in Ephesus in the 50s, elders were overseers, were shepherds. Interchangeable terms. In Paul's uh, letter to Timothy and Titus, um, we find out more about overseers and deacons. The, The word overseer is traditionally translated bishop. And elder, uh, presbyter, but it becomes also priest. In First Timothy, an overseer or bishop is a mature Christian who is unimpeachable with respect to godly character. With respect to overseers, they must be able to teach. But when Paul starts to talk about teaching and preaching later on in the letter, actually he doesn't mention overseers. Rather, he uses the word elders or presbyters. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder, unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, so that others may take warning. I charge you, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So not all elders teach and preach. Only some elders teach and preach. Timothy is not to be too quick in authorizing teachers and preachers. For in this context, this laying on of hands is almost certainly not prayer for the sick, nor is it a blessing or sending somebody out, but rather in this context, the laying on of hands is a ceremony for recognizing someone as holding a particular office or job, a recognition of the right and authority to teach and preach. Don't be hasty in giving away that permission. That's that's overseers. Deacons, likewise, are to be of unimpeachable Christian character. But nothing is said about teaching. Deacons had some particular role in Timothy's church. And, quote, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 3.13. However, we don't know what the role is. It's never defined. It is easy to imagine that they were somehow subordinates to the overseers and that their role was to assist the overseers. That's a natural enough assumption, but we, it's never explicitly said. We don't know if it's true. We don't know what deacons did. One of the big things that Timothy, however, is to do, as Paul's representative there in Ephesus, is to shut down the teaching ministries of some perhaps many, perhaps indeed even most, 
as there were many in his church who wanted to be teachers, who wanted to be teachers of the law, but they did not know what it was that they were so confidently affirming, Paul says. They do not know what they were talking about. And in his letter to Titus, Paul uses the term overseer and elder again interchangeably. Of the highest Christian character, to be sure, the overseer or elder is to be someone who can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Well, moving from Paul to uh, Peter, Peter writes to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Well, um, this survey of the New Testament isn't exhaustive. Indeed, actually, this morning we've only just barely scratched the surface. But we've done now enough work uh, to be able to say the following that when it comes to the leadership of God's church, the New Testament recognizes apostles, evangelists, prophets, teachers, pastors, elders, shepherds, overseers, and deacons. There is clear diversity between churches and across time, and an equally clear lack of uniformity across the churches. Some terms are not defined. Some are general in one place, such as the term elder, which generally means simply an older person, anyone over 40. Sorry if you've just turned 40. Um, but in other places, elder might be a specific term that has very definite responsibilities attached. Someone with a recognized leadership role. And some of these terms are apparently interchangeable in some contexts, such as elder and overseer. In addition, we have to say that this list of terms that we've discovered, there's no reason to understand that it is exhaustive. It is entirely possible that other officers were recognized, yet not specifically named, such as, for example, the healing ministry person the office of tongues interpreter, church administrator, that's biblical, miracle worker, or indeed music director. That goes way back even into the Old Testament. What we do see is a pattern of increasing complexity matching growth in the church. More and more people and more and more churches requiring different different. Differentiate, differentiate, what's the word I'm trying to say? Differentiation, thank you. Differentiation of task and clearer lines of authority as the church grows. Ever-increasing growth requires ever-increasing differentiation and specialization. Otherwise, you just have a tumor. What then do we now make of this statement? It is evident unto all men 
Can we have the next slide, please? Thank you. What then do we make of this statement? It is evident unto all men, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures and ancient authors, that from the apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church, bishops, priests, and deacons. Well, I think we can say this at the very least. It is more wrong than right. But if this statement is actually a very poor reflection of the New Testament evidence, why was this pattern so stable that it was uniformly adopted across the whole wide world in less than a century and then has continued for another 18 centuries um, without much challenge across most churches? Well, two factors possibly influence its adoption in the first place. Firstly, an external force contending with the Gnostics, contending with heresy. Um, We've had occasion already in this series of sermons to talk about who the Gnostics were and what they believed. The term, as you may remember, refers, the term means uh, knowledge or those in the know, the Gnostics, Gnosticism, and this refers to a group of cults or religions that sprang up early in the second century that persisted for a few centuries, that were loosely based upon Christianity, but in their thinking was more altogether like Greek philosophy. The Gnostics were saying that Jesus entrusted certain special, secret wisdom. He imparted that to select teachers before he ascended. The Gnostics loved secret information, um, conspiracy theories, Loved all that stuff. They would have loved YouTube. This secret knowledge has been passed on through a line of teachers to the present day. The Catholic Christians countered this argument by saying that the gospel, as public truth rather than secret message, that this gospel had been entrusted first to the apostles by Jesus, and then the apostles in turn entrusting it to the bishops or overseers, and that there was a clear line of succession by way of ordination between the bishops of today, that is, the present, the second century, and the apostles of the uh, early to mid-first century. A clear line of succession, they said. Apostles, it was said, ordained bishops through the laying on of hands, and since then, Each generation of bishops ordained the next generation of bishops through the laying on of hands, apostolic succession. And this idea gave bishops, therefore, the defined authority as defenders of gospel truth. That was an external pressure. There was an internal pressure also, a problem within churches that needed to be solved. And uh, and that was um, this, that the internal pressure was that Christians didn't know what to do with post-baptismal sin. At baptism, they believed, quite rightly, that all their previous sins were washed away. Quite right. But what if you sin after baptism? What do you do then? And what was forgivable and what wasn't? In essence, the church made bishops the ones who had, after Christ and the apostles, they were the ones who had the authority 
to forgive sins. Thus, in order to counter these two forces, there quickly emerged a unified system. Bishops were considered to be now in the place of the apostles. They alone were authorized to preach the gospel. They alone were authorized to declare forgiveness of sin, just like the apostles. They'd received this authority by way of a tradition of the laying on of hands that extended, they said, all the way back to the twelve. Bishops in ultimate authority with priests serving the bishops as their vicarious ambassadors or vicars across the various congregations. And deacons likewise helping the priests with their various administrative duties. Well, as you may already know, this in fact was a gross oversimplification of the truth. And the whole thing would come back to bite us because these ideas set us up for some very big problems later on. But at least for today, we now know how we got there. Three tiers of hierarchical ordained ministry. So what? Well, today... Most denominations, like the Anglican Church, most denominations, I would say probably pretty much every Christian denomination, appeals to Holy Scripture in justifying their forms and patterns of leadership. It's biblical, we all say, whilst on the way to justifying all kinds of different ideas, many of which are mutually exclusive. What I hope we might have seen today as we looked at the Bible is that actually any number of different models might be biblical, in terms of finding a correspondence or justification or illustration somewhere in the New Testament. But that probably isn't the point. 